This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Tom Rowland is probably best known today as host of the television series Saltwater Experience and the Tom Rowland Podcast. But Tom has a deeply rooted career in the fly fishing industry, starting as a guide in Wyoming before moving to guide in the Florida Keys. In this episode of Anchored, I sit down with Tom to learn more about his past and to discuss tournaments, television, and more. Yeah, I was raised in Chattanooga, Tennessee, lived there all through high school. Then I went to University of Alabama. Alabama. Uh, yeah, Alabama. I didn't peg you as a Southern boy. I am very Southern. I thought for sure you were from, I, th- I thought you were from Wyoming or well, something. Well, I spent a lot of time out there. Okay, so you're born in the deep South. Yeah. And did you fish growing up? I did, with my dad. That's one of our favorite things to do. Mostly like bass and bluegill, a lot of crickets, a lot of worms, um, and then graduated to like lures and stuff. But took it kind of not not really seriously. It was just something that we did together. But I can remember that it was always my favorite thing. I liked fishing better than I liked hunting. I grew up hunting too, but for whatever reason, I liked fishing better. And it stayed like that growing up? It did. Even today? Um, I like hunting. I like fishing. I like both. But hunting hunting occupies a different place in my life. Like hunting is more personal. Fishing is is like more professional at this point. I and, understand uh, but I But I still have a professional side of my fishing and a personal side of my fishing because I, I fish with all my kids. I enjoy fishing enough to where I do it for a living, but I also like to do it on my, my own time. But hunting is... is um, Yours. Yeah, it's mine. Um, but I'm also not good enough at it to be professional. <laughs> like, That's fair, like, yeah. I mean, you know, um, it's, it's a hobby. It's, it's something that I like to do. It's fun. It's a way that I spend time with my dad. It's something that... It's entirely different than fishing. Like, I don't have the overwhelming obsession to get as good at it as I can possibly be that I did with fishing. Like that occupied everything to learn the tackle, to learn the techniques, to learn the fish, not just in Wyoming, not just in Tennessee, not just in the Florida Keys, but everywhere, anywhere that there were fish. That was an overarching just passion in my life. Okay, so you were fishing with your dad growing up. Mm-hmm. And I guess the first thing that happened with my dad and in associated with fishing is when I was a junior in high school, he took me to Reindeer Lake Lodge, which was the first time I had ever traveled anywhere to go fishing. 
It was the first time that we had ever been with a fishing guide. It was the first time that I had ever fished like five or six days in a row, and that's the sole purpose that we were there. So that was a big trip for me. It still didn't sink in that being a fishing guide is a thing, like something that you could do. It was more of kind of like, wow, that was really cool. I didn't know that you did that. But I was not exposed to fishing guides growing up. My, we didn't go on, on guided trips. We didn't go to places even that people were guiding. So I didn't even know it was a thing until I went to, well, after college, really. Well, with, in, in college. So the story is that I worked in Yellowstone National Park. Okay. So I was at University of Alabama. I work at Yellowstone National Park in, in my first summer there. And it really opened my eyes to so much. I mean, like, I don't really want to be doing what I was doing in college. And I do want to be pursuing these kind of things. What were you doing in the park when you were working there? I was a maid. I was cleaning toilets. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Okay. So the best job when I was there. But you didn't want to be doing what you were doing in college. What were you doing in college? Just partying, living hard, okay. fraternity life, just meaningless, stupid stuff. And, and I wasn't very interested in college. I never was good in school. And college was no different. I was a, a, a rudderless boat. I didn't have any goals. I didn't have any dreams. I didn't have any aspirations. I didn't see any way that I was going to make it as a grown-up. It just, <laughs> I just didn't. I mean, I'm like, I'm going to really strap on a tie and go sit in a cubicle? That's not me. Is that what you defined as a grown-up? That's what I thought, yeah. Were you still fishing and hunting all through that time? Yeah, but just just as something to do. Like, okay. just as something to do. When I heard about Yellowstone, it was from another person that had gone and done that the summer before. And he came back and and he was just like different. He was just really different. Like he didn't come to all the parties anymore. He didn't he was just different. He was he had a whole different attitude. He let his hair grow longer. Everything was just he was just different. And I was like, What happened to that guy? And and it really I was very curious. So I asked him and he's like, Man, yeah, you should go. It's amazing. He started telling us. So there were like three or four of us that said, sure, let's try it. Let's go to Yellowstone. Wow. I had no idea what to expect, none whatsoever. But I did know that there was fly fishing in the park. So I did start brushing up on my fly fishing because I was not a fly fisherman at the time. I went to Kmart at the time. There wasn't a Walmart. And I bought a browning fiberglass rod, a Martin single action reel that was like $9 or whatever, (laughs) and a a level line that kind of came with it, whatever they sold at Kmart. And one of those little metal things, the little eyelets that you screw into the end of the fly line so you don't have to tie a nail knot. Oh, my God. Do you know what that is? No. <laughs> Sorry. <it's before laughs> they used me. to sell them, and they would, you would kind of screw these things like a, like a corkscrew into the fly line, and then you would tie a clinch knot onto the end of that, and that would be your leader. Of course, you're never going to catch anything big like that. It'll pull right out. But, I mean, just started out just doing everything wrong. I didn't know anything about fly fishing, so I just went out in the backyard and just flailed about until sooner or later it started looking a little bit better. But I was so green that I, I didn't know how you would possibly put a fly on because the the heavy yellow line, how could it possibly fit through these little, <laughs> we little lines? We were just talking about that. Oh, really? Yeah, that's one <laughs> of the number one things that beginners don't can't wrap their heads around. Yeah. And and you have to explain to them you're you know, attaching monofilament. Did you bring this fly rod set up with you to Yellowstone? No, my dad actually gave me... Um, a rod. He gave me a four-piece Orvis um, Western series. I can remember it like it's yesterday. I actually just saw it over it. Uh, my son was messing around with all the stuff and taking some stuff out to Montana because that's where he is now. It was an eight and a half foot six weight is what I took out there. So what happened on that trip? Well, the uh, do you, are you familiar with the park? Mm. I've only fished it once a long time ago. Okay. Well, this place is, I'm tiny. not giving away any secrets now because unfortunately the, the uh, lake trout have taken over and this particular spot is no longer exists like it once did. Fishing Bridge is a place where there's a bridge that goes over the Yellowstone River and it's called Fishing Bridge. And if you look at some old National Geographic magazines, you can see articles about Yellowstone National Park and you can literally see hundreds of people set, standing on this bridge just Bailing trout, cutthroat trout. Wow. They used to just catch them. They were thick underneath. You could walk over the bridge and you could see 
hundreds, if not thousands of cutthroat trout. Now you walk over that bridge, you don't see any. But anyway, fishing bridge, the the lake, you, you can't fish a mile from the uh, mouth of the lake into the river. And if you go and park behind the ranger station, the Howard Eaton Trail is right there, and you can walk on the Howard Eaton Trail until there are some signs that say you can now fish. You know, there would be closed to fishing signs all the way, and then when they stop, you're good to go. So I walked over that bridge and saw all those fish, and I said, well, I need to fish as close to this bridge as possible. I was that smart. Like, (laughs) there are a lot of fish right here, so how can I fish the closest that I possibly can? You can fish in the lake there. There's a, a place where you can fish. But then you can also go down that Howard Eaton Trail. And as I went down that Howard Eaton Trail, which is grizzly country for sure, and I'm going down there by myself, and there is a high bank that looks down into the water. And coming from Tennessee and Alabama, used to dark water, not perfectly clear water. And I can still remember this like it was yesterday. I looked down and I think that I'm looking at the surface of the water and you can have this experience if you're walking by you know a department store or whatever and you think you're looking in into the window but you see your reflection all of a sudden and then you're kind of like oh and you get your depth perception and you're like okay that's in in there here's the glass here's my reflection so I look down off this high bank the water's perfectly clear and this fish is just floating in the air because it wasn't rough water at all it was like a laminar flow just smooth water and this fish just looked like it was floating so I all of a sudden kind of got my bearings I'm like oh okay well that's the surface of the water there's the fish it's just really super clear water and so I went down there and somehow I first tied on a stone fly I guess miraculously put a stone fly thought that maybe it might eat a stone fly and tied this dry fly on threw it up in front of this poor cutthroat trout and it comes up and eats it and I catch that fish and that to me was like lightning striking it was I mean a lot of people have asked me like how did you end up here and if I ever tell them this story I've told my kids this story I'm like that was it I knew right then at that exact moment that I was going to be doing this for the rest of my life. Wow. Like, I don't know what this even is, but outside fishing, it could, and it it has, you know, evolved and matured into not Wyoming anymore, you know, Florida Keys, all, all these other things. But that has held true, that that one moment was the turning point. It is. It is one moment, isn't it? Well, it can be. I don't. I, and my kids are fascinated with that. Like my son, he's twenty-one, or he's about to be twenty-one, and he's going through a lot of things right now. Like I don't like school. You know, he's trying to study business. He he switched his major a couple times. He loves hunting. He loves fishing. He loves all this stuff, but he he just hasn't had that moment. And he's at, and well, first of all, he's twenty. You know, I mean, not a lot of kids have that moment at 20. Some people have that moment at 60. But he's like, what does that feel like? I mean, he's asked me that. And I'm, nobody's ever asked me that. Like, what did that feel like? Like, how did you know? And I, all I can say is, man, when you know, you know. To me, there was no other option. I wasn't going to, <laughs> I wasn't going to be in a cubicle and do this on the weekends. But still, I had no idea what the path looked like. I had no idea how to get there. I had no idea that even being up at this point, that, that a fishing guide or, or iCast or anything, this whole industry of ways that you can actually make money and support yourself, I didn't even know that existed. But I just knew that regardless, I was going to live in a trailer, I was going to live in a teepee, I was going to live in a tent, I was going to work in Yellowstone for the rest of my life. I don't know what it's going to look like, but that's what I'm going to do. That's just the way it happened. And I try to explain it to to my son, you know, like, it's okay that you don't have that. I think I'm very lucky that I did have that. But I'm also, my son is way smarter than me. He did way better in school than me. He has other options. I don't think I had any other options. I needed to find a way that I could be engaged. And this was the first time, other than high school athletics, which was wrestling, I was deeply engaged in wrestling. I learned very quickly, and I always found it very interesting that in the classroom, I would struggle, but when I get to wrestling practice, I would excel. 
and I could learn that way. And over the years, you know, when you have you have lots of these books and people that do these studies and about how people will learn. Some people are auditory learners. Some people are, are physical learners. They've got to get their hands on it. And, and now they embrace that in schools. When I went to school, it wasn't, there was one way to learn. And if you couldn't fit into that box, then you were just a dumbass, basically. So, I mean, I, I did okay. I passed. But, you know, everybody else is like, oh, that was super easy. I'm thinking, man, it wasn't super easy. It was super hard. Plus, I'm not even interested in it. Like, why are we even doing this anyway? Which is probably why it was so hard. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it was. And then, then in wrestling, they would show a move once. I knew it. You and, look like a wrestler, by the way. Well, wrestling was wrestling was very important to me. And then my kids wrestled. So at this point, I've been a, a wrestler, been a wrestling coach, and I've been a wrestling parent. Oh, wow. And all three are very different from one another. And the most difficult by far is being a wrestling parent. Yeah, I figured you'd say that. Yeah. Well, you're out of control. You have no control over it. When you're the wrestler, you're completely under your control. You either did the work or you didn't. And you're going up against someone who either did the work or they didn't. And you know, sometimes you've done the work, but this guy just has way more experience. You step into that willingly, and the outcome is the outcome. You have control over it. As a wrestling coach, you can have put in the work you can have shown them the moves you can do all these things but ultimately they had to do it but you still have a piece of control of that over that as a wrestling parent you're just sitting in the stands and you have no control and you're the thing that you love the most is out there getting his arm ripped off while the other wrestler's mother is screaming in your ear rip his neck off oh my god God, no. I mean, my, it was very hard on my wife. It, it aged us years and years, but that's a that's that's a whole different road to go down the uh, the wrestling road. But um, I don't know. I don't even know how we got there. Well, we're just talking about following your heart. But let's get back to that park. So you leave there, and this is what you're doing. Yeah. And what did the rest well, of the guys think? Were they were they on board? Um, no, no. One kind of was, but he didn't have that. Thing that he wanted to do. He just liked that lifestyle. Okay. Okay. So he went on and he, he continued to work in the park for five or six years. And that was perfect for him. The others, this was a one-time deal. They went and they developed their careers or whatever they did. Never went back to the park to my, to my knowledge. And then me, I was just dead set that that's what I was going to do. And so went back to school and, and now I'm kind of like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. How am I going to do it? Mm-hmm. So I came up with this great idea that I was going to work in a fish cannery in Alaska (laughs) 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 because somehow, somewhere, I heard that was a thing that you could do, right? Yeah. And I figured I can work a knife as well as anybody else. I can probably get a job as a fish cannery in Alaska. But you weren't thinking, oh, it's fish. I like fish. This will give me some sort of pleasure. You know they're very different things, right? It was only, yeah. No, this was a means to an end. I'm going to go to Alaska. I'm going to fish all the time. And if I've got to work in a fish cannery, great. Because I had no other idea that there were that you even did anything in Alaska. I'd never been to Alaska. I don't know. But I was going. And my dad's listening to this, and he's like, wow, you're going to go to work in a fish cannery in Alaska. You don't know anyone in Alaska. You've never worked in a fish cannery. Sounds like a pretty rough place to him. You don't have a car. You don't have any money. You don't know where you're going to live. I mean, on and on and on what dads think. And uh, he handled it so well. He just said, okay, that that sounds really good. And then one day I got, in his signature way, he sends a yellow piece of paper, you know, don't long legal pad, you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. He, that's his life. He's on those long legal pads all his time. And he, he uses this brown pen, and he always has this brown felt pen. <laughs> and uh, in his writing, the way that he does, he says, would you consider this instead? And then it just had this little piece of, of a newspaper that he had ripped out, and it was scotch-taped onto this, this uh, pad, I mean, just this one piece of paper, and it was folded in his signature trifold way and stuck in an envelope. And so I opened it up, and it was an it was an ad out of the Orvis News, and it was like that big, really small. And it said, Professional Guide School, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and a phone number. That was pretty much it. And I was like, I called him immediately on the landline because no phone lines or no cell phones. And I said, I don't know what this is, but yes, I, I want to do it. I'm in. He says, okay, well, why don't you call out there and see what it's all about? 
And sure enough, it was a guide school. And it was operated by Joe Bressler in Jackson, Wyoming. And um, he said, do you want to come? And I said, yeah, sure. And he said, send in your deposit or whatever. Told my dad. And he said, okay, I think this is going to be a good thing. And he sent me to that guide school. And uh, that was incredible. That was life-changing, truly life-changing. Was it Was it worth it? What did you learn? Because I always say to people, oh my God, don't waste your money. Yeah. Volunteer for free at a lodge and figure it out. But you're saying it was worth it. It was It was worth it. And, and that particular guide school spawned a whole group of people that are still in the industry today. Wow. So what did you learn? You learn everything. How long were you there for? It's about, as I remember, I think it was 10 days. Okay. And um, it was fantastic. You learn how to row a boat mostly. And so they put you in a drift boat and every day you're going down the rivers. And I don't know if this school even exists anymore because I know Joe Bressler doesn't run it, but maybe there's one out there that's similar. And I've sent a number of people to it at the time. But you would learn how to row a boat and then along the way, you would have, like, the, the guide would be behind you while you're learning how to row a boat. So he's like, now pull on this, this arm, this arm, push, pull, 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 you know. And, and he would be right behind you and could even grab the oars if necessary. But, you know, it was, it was a perfect time for the outfit because, and it was genius play by a guy that I don't think finished high school. Joe Bressler, he, he was just, he was super smart like this. He knew his guides needed some work. And he thought, well, we could have a guide school. And I don't think that he ever dreamed that it was going to be as productive for his outfit as it was because it revolutionized his outfit completely because the kind of kids that came to this school were superstars, superstars, and they were in the same position as I am. I'm going to do this, and I don't care what it takes. And so you would learn all the knots. You would learn how to row a boat. You would learn how to teach someone how to cast not necessarily casting better yourself, but how to teach someone. You would learn. They had classes on psychology, uh, how to how to communicate better with your with your customers. How to what a day of guiding should look like. What is a guide's job? What is a guide's what is what is your role? When do when do you get to fish? If you ever get to fish, which is never. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and so Joe Bressler's father was Vern Bressler, and he's you know Joe was a second generation outfitter. Vern Bressler was a hard-ass cowboy that believed in the ultimate uh, experience for his customers, the ultimate experience. The guide was there to make sure that everyone enjoyed themselves. And you were to look like a cowboy when you showed up. You were to act like a gentleman all day. You were never to be late. Your equipment was sparkling at all times. And... It was all about hospitality. You say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. Everything is all about the customer. And whether you catch big fish, that is not the goal of the day. The goal of the day is that those people have a good enough time that they want to come back tomorrow and they want to come back next year and they want to be a 20-year return customer. And Vern Bressler just, he was really good like that and, and started my guide career out with those kind of standards of excellence. Did you guys ever get to practice on real people? Because yeah. the hardest part about guiding is every every day is someone different. Right. You've got to figure out what makes them tick. Yeah, when so, do I talk? When do I keep my mouth shut? Right. So there's like 12 students probably, if I remember, maybe 10 or 12. And then there's that number of, of guides. So you would pair up in two people per, per guide. And then you float down the river all day long. So one guy is rowing. The other guy's fishing in the front. The guide's in the back fishing. And you're going over all these scenarios all the time. Like... Okay, he's throwing a tail in the loop. What do you do? He's now stuck in the bushes. Now what are you going to do? When do you go over there? Or when is it dangerous to go over there? When do you just tell him to break it off? All of these things. Of course, to me, I knew none of this. So it was all brand new. And what was amazing to me when we go back to the thing about school is I was picking this stuff up like this. Everything. It was like wrestling practice. Like I was so into it. And I even had this moment of like, this is what Danny Labrador feels like in school. <laughs> this kid, Danny Labrador, that was like the valedictorian of our class. I'm like, this is what he feels like in chemistry class. Like, wow. Then all of a sudden I'm reading books and I'm learning, you know, I'm asking, you know, going up to these people of authority, like these other guides, which I did not like authority and I would just go the other way. Now I'm finding myself going up there. Hey, can you show me this knot? Hey, I saw you were doing that. Can you show me? I wasn't ever asking questions like that until I found fishing and fly fishing and therefore my learning curve just shot through the roof this is so cool but then when you finish they're not teaching you how to get clients and stuff right no no there's not that but 
what they would do is, you know, it's only a small group, right? So in that group, as I remember, there's probably three or four kids that really want guide jobs. Then there's some 40-year-olds that are thinking, you know, fly fishing's pretty expensive. This school is like $1,000, and I get 10 days of, of learning how to row a boat and doing all this. So you had those kind of people that were like into the experience. They didn't want a trip or, or a job. And, and then others that thought, maybe down the road I'll get a job. So really there's like three people that want, want a job, three or four in that first class. At the end of the trip, Joe pulled me in his office, and he goes, hey, you did great. You graduated, and I got a great job for you. It's going to be at the Diamond J Ranch in Montana. Oh. And I was crushed. Why? <sighs> well, I was excited that I could get a job, but I had grown to love these guys, man. Like, all of these guys were the instructors. They were the guides at this outfit. Joe Bressler was awesome. He was one of my favorite people I've ever met in my life. And I'm thinking, oh, I don't, oh, okay. And this was a big moment in my life, too, where I would never have done this before. But I started to walk out of his office, and I turned around, and I said, you know what, Joe? I'd really like to work for you. I would really like to stay here, and I'd like to work for you. And he said, okay, I'll send the other guy up there. <gasps> and and no it was a way. huge moment. It was a huge moment because I stood up for myself, and I, I, you know, I, I was assertive, and, and I knew what I wanted, and I, and I got it. And it was so easy. That that was huge for me. Like, okay, good. Now I've got this. And then he set me up. He gave me a truck. It was like a F three fifty four door long bed, which is the biggest pickup truck that I've ever seen. Yeah. And we got it out of John boats. And so we rode John boats down the river. And I was I was the do everything guy. Wow, that is such a cool yeah. story. Yeah, it was. I mean, I think about it all the time, and it seems so often. It seems like it was just yesterday. How long were you uh, in Wyoming for? Um, seven summers. Okay. Yeah, so I would I would guide out there, go back to college, guide out there, go back to college. What were you taking in college? Whatever I could stay awake in. Okay. It ended up being geography. Did you finish? It was important for my it was important to my parents. Okay. And um and at this point, like they didn't know any fishing guides. I mean, they've never met a fishing guide ever. It's a little different today. Like, it's a lot different. Today. There are a lot of people that make their living as a fishing guide, but it, then you go tell tell somebody you're going to be a fishing guide. Maybe in other areas of the country, that's a thing. It was not a thing for 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 me um, or my parents. So my dad has always been my biggest fan. But you know, there's a realism to like this. Like, okay, maybe maybe you should go to college just in case, you know. And and really, to his credit, and and being smart about it. Fishing was over there the second week of September. I mean, there were no more customers. It's way different today. But Labor Day would roll around. The kids would go back to school, and Jackson Hole dried up. It was off-season in September. And, you know, the top guide would get, you know, another handful of days in September and a handful of days in October. But it was it was over. And, you know, this is pre-river uh, runs through it. And right. when that comes out, everything changed. But even now, you still have to, whether you're in Canada or in the States, you still typically have to travel as a guide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you do, probably either for water conditions or for customers. There are a few places that I think can sustain a guide year-round. Lucky, that was my next place that I landed was in Key West, and that is one of those places. So I was just searching for something else, and I thought maybe um, I need to fish somewhere. I tried tying flies commercially in Jackson, Wyoming. That was a horrible experience. I can tie a Quigley Cripple really fast and really good, but they, they're not very valuable, I found out. <laughs> Even with all the hard work and effort I was putting into them, they can buy them much cheaper elsewhere. Yeah. And that is not a way that you sustain yourself. But I tried. I thought that was a way to do it. I thought maybe I would go to Chile or Argentina or some other trout fishing area, but I had no connections down there, nothing. I just didn't know how that was going to work. Um, there was a connection, a strong connection between Jackson Hole fishing guides and the Cayman Islands, Little Cayman specifically. And uh, Yeah, why is that? Uh, well, I think Joe Bressler went there and worked for some reason. I don't know how that started. Joe Bressler went there. Bucky Buckenroth went there. Burley Fox ended up going there. There was a steady stream. It's like once you get somebody good from a certain area, 
then that employer is like, well, yeah, I want another one. Do you have a friend? Mm-hmm. You know, and so then the friend goes, and then then you hear, and then then this guy's not going to do it anymore, and there's an open position. So you know, so he's that sending all area, of his guides there. He, well, it, it, Joe Joe was sending some friends there, like oh. like Bucky Buckenroth. He worked for a different outfitter, but he ends up going down there. I think Carter Andrews went down there. Um, and those are all connections from Jackson, Wyoming. And for whatever reason, I don't know how that started or, or why, but there was a connection to Little Cayman. And so I went down to Little Cayman to look, and I took my girlfriend, who's now my wife, and it was just not going to work. It was far too remote. There was, there was uh, one telephone and two pickup trucks on the island. It was very remote. Now, this is Little Cayman not Grand Cayman. Grand Cayman probably would have worked. My wife was probably like, yeah, this would be great. Her family had gone down there scuba diving for years. That would have been fantastic. But Little Cayman, is, it was a whole different animal. Very, very, very primitive. And um, the Southern Cross Club was there. My wife was going to be the cook. And it just was not good. I mean, I remember, I, I know what 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 it was we were laying in the bed and looking at the grass thatched roof and there were scorpions crawling in the thatched roof and she was like nope mm. nope and i couldn't argue with her i'm like yeah this would be pretty tough so on the way back we stopped in key west to visit one of my friends there that had come out to um, fish with us in wyoming and sure enough that was simon becker and uh we landed in key west it was during fantasy fest but we went down there they're having this huge party there's I mean, you're in America. It's amazing. You're on this great island. We know one person. Like, what's wrong with this? And then we went fishing. I remember we went fishing to the Marquesas the next day, and I was just like, yeah, this is it. I mean, I don't know how this is going to work. Um, is but, this flats fishing? Mm-hmm, yeah. So you weren't trained as a flats guide? No. no but no. you've done some flats fishing. I'd never fishing. even seen a bonefish before. Okay. Oh, no, wow. Oh, great. <laughs> or a permit. Or a tarpon. Well, I, I had caught a tarpon at that point. Um but, uh, yeah, so the, it, it happened that Simon had a roommate. Um, they said, you, you should come back. You know, so I went ba- we went back to Wyoming, and I planned a trip in the next couple of months. So I went back there and fished with those guys for a while and was having a great time just kind of visiting. And uh, Michael Pollock, he says, uh, hey, listen, I'm going to be moving out of here. And I'm also buying a new boat. And I'm going to move in with my girlfriend. And I don't really, I need to either sell this boat or I need to rent this boat. So what do you think about this? You come down here. You become Simon's roommate, you rent my boat, and uh, I don't know, we'll just go from there. And I was like, that, I'll take it. Like, I don't even know how I'm going to do this, but I'll take it. I'll be back in a month. <laughs> and uh, that's how it started. Did you do the whole guiding in Wyoming and in mm-hmm. Florida? For a little for while. while. Yeah, for a little while. What happened um, there? Well, my wife, uh, we ended up getting married, and uh, I said, uh, you know, where do you want to be? Well, she told me when I asked her to marry me, she said, uh, well, I don't really care where we are, but we need to go there and we need to stay all year round. That's so, hard for a guide. But Key West offered that, right? So it is a 12-month fishery. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah, so you can you can fish more than 300 days a year, and I did for a long time. But yeah, it's it's you can definitely do it in Key West. What happened after the movie came out? <laughs> after the movie came out, we went from having eight guides to having 24 guides and went from those eight guides struggling to get seven days a week to all 24 guides having seven days a week plus teaching casting lessons at the local <laughs> local ranches and you know doing half days double half days and all kinds of crazy stuff it was it was the most incredible thing and and you know that's one of the things too is that there's a there's a lot of luck for me having made a career in the fishing industry because that was a big part of it. Those people that came out there, if you were nice to those people, they didn't know any other fishing guides. So if you treated them well and showed them a good time and taught them some things, they were coming back. Maybe even that summer because they were way into it. Then they'd come back next year and the next year and the next year. And that's how I started in the Florida Keys. I just took all those people down to the Keys. And so I had almost a full schedule when I started, not not a full schedule, but a whole lot better than starting from scratch. And it was all because of that movie. I mean, you say what you want about too many people coming in that movie, but that movie was responsible for a lot of fishing guides getting started and being being successful, you know, in the guide business because all of a sudden there were just people 
And not only that, they came out with a Gore-Tex wader right around that time. So now, now you're not wearing these giant duck hunting waders anymore. People are more comfortable. The, the drift boat started getting more popular. The, the South Fork skiff, you know, came out, which are these lower sit-down boats. Every, I mean, just there was a lot of technology that went in. The, the rain jackets, uh, Gore-Tex, in fact, just being more comfortable outside, I believe opened it, opened the outdoor industry up to a lot of people that were not interested before. And then all of a sudden you got Brad Pitt on, on screen, you know, doing some really cool stuff in this, this amazing story by Norm McLean, and it brought a lot of people out there. What did it do to the flats world, though, or to Florida? Nothing. Did it, it, nothing, nothing to saltwater, right? It was a it was about a five year lag because those people needed to come into the sport of fishing and they needed to have a good experience with it and have some success with it enough to actually think that they might there might be other fish that they want to catch. There might be other fish that actually exist besides trout that you can catch on a fly rod, and so you you then saw about a five year lag where all of those people are now coming down and they're rookie anglers. In, in the Florida Keys and the Bahamas and everywhere else. Your timing was perfect. <laughs> really, it was. It, it was. And, and so was Lori Ann's. And so was, you know, Madison Rogers and so, so many of these guys and, and Joe Bressler. You know, Joe Bressler's timing was absolutely perfect because two years before they built the Orvis store in Jackson, Wyoming. Right, it wasn't on the town square. Jack Dennis was on the town square. Uh, High Country Flies was on the town square, but the Orvis store was off the town square, right next to Bubba's Barbecue, oh, okay. and it wasn't really a great place for walk-up traffic. And I gotta think, and I may be wrong, but I gotta think that the first year was not their best year. And then, of course, the next year, I mean, the parking lot's full. All the time, everybody, and, and, and Orvis is a name that people associate, or at least at that point, associate with a lot of teaching and classes, and they would have, you know, so while the guides are out on the river, the, guy, the shop guys are teaching casting all day long. It was, there was just a lot of people, a lot of people wanting to fly fish. It's a lot less now, do you find? Mm-hmm. I think it goes in waves, don't yeah. you? I, well, I think so, but I also don't have the, the insight that you do. Yeah. Well, or the hindsight. I think that it, I think that it goes in waves. I think that you see, I think when social media first started out and you see these little short films and the Fly Fish and Film Festival, uh, is going around and, and people are seeing this, I think you, you see a, you see a spike. And, and I mean, if people see something cool and, and there's some great storytellers out there with, with words and, and, and video and, when when that gets out there, people want to do it. You For know? sure. And I think that I think after a while, people get a little bit numb to that, and then then it kind of goes down a little bit, and then some people just start doing some really cool stuff again. And you know, like the drone comes out, and now you can see people catching fish from above, and and that makes people want to go. And so I think you just I think you see an ebb and a flow. But in Florida, there's just it's just a constant um, steady stream. Steady stream. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, you obviously kept up with the momentum. How long did you guide in Florida for? I don't know, about 18 years, I guess. No, that's a long time. Yeah. So 25 years of guiding in total. Yeah. Did you ever get to a point where you were like, eh, I don't want to do this for much longer? No. No, I loved guiding. I love everything about guiding, but I will say this, that I'm glad that I found another way to do it now. I, I think that I've seen I've seen some things now that I didn't, recognize when I was a young man and that is going to the Florida Keys and seeing these bad ass guides I mean these guys were awesome 
They were doing exactly what they wanted to do. They were living in life on their own terms. They were fishing every single day. They were catching fish that nobody else was catching. They were awesome. They had customers. Everything was great. But some of those people didn't have any plan. They were living life day to day. They weren't putting money away. They weren't thinking what happens if I break my leg, what happens if, and and one of those ifs is skin cancer and sun. I mean, that sun just eats you alive. Unfortunately, I've seen some some of the people that I would consider like a hero or, or, or at least somebody that I really looked up to uh, at this point are really having some hard times because they didn't they didn't plan. They didn't plan for a way out. There was no plan B, which in some way you got to respect that. Like this is it and this is what I'm doing and I'm all in. Well, that's easy to say when you're 30. When you're 70, mm. you know, and you got skin cancer and I just I just it it's really hard for me to to see somebody that was passionate about what they wanted to do went out into the sun every single day. And now the thing that they loved is literally killing them. And and the only way that they can make any money, they don't have any other skills, and the only way that they can make any money is to continue to go back out into the sun. What advice would you, like if you were their fathers, what would you say to them when they were younger? I don't know that I could give those guys any, any advice. Invest some money? I don't know that money? I can really, yeah. I think that's the way to do it is you, you got to be smart with your money. And a fishing guide makes plenty of money, especially if you don't have kids. You make plenty of money to have a very nice retirement. But if you're buying a new boat every year, or you know, you're you're a lot of there's a lot of drinking in the in the guide business as well. That tends to chew up a lot of your money. But you you have to be smart with your money, mm-hmm. and you have to have your money work for you, and not you work for your money. And if if you don't think about that, man. It's a fun life. You love what you're doing, and the years fly by like that. And the next thing you know, some doctor's telling you you can't go out in the sun anymore. You have no other, no other way to make a living. What are you going to do, work, go work at Walmart? I mean, I think, I think that at some point you have to be thinking about what is the plan. Can I transition this into something else? Did you have that thought? No. Or did it just kind of happen organically? <laughs> it just happened. Um, I'll tell you how it happened for me. Is I, I started into the um, to the tournaments because, like, I was all about learning as much as possible, and I was learning a lot. But I didn't really start learning until I started fishing in, in fishing tournaments. And you can say what you want about fishing tournaments, and I know that probably your audience isn't as familiar with fishing tournaments as as some others, but. The thing about fishing tournaments is that you there's no bullshit. You you show up at the dock and somebody says they caught 35 bonefish today. You never really know. Cuz the guy that really caught 35 bonefish, he's already packed his shit up and he's gone and he didn't say anything to anybody. Yeah. Because he don't want anybody to know that he For caught sure. a lot of fish, yeah. right? <laughs> and and he's not posting it on social media and he's not doing anything cuz he wants to go back there tomorrow and hopefully it's going to be really good or if he's really good, he's not going to go back there for 2 weeks until the tides are just the same and he's going to let those fish rest, right? And so he don't want anybody there. But, you know, there's dock talk that you never know. Like you never know, is this guy really that good or what? And then you've got the customers talking. Well, they've already had two beers, and now the fish was this big, now it's this big. And so you never really know. <laughs> but at a fishing tournament, even something as simple as the Redbone tournament, which is designed to be fun, but it becomes ultra competitive, you got to take pictures of all the fish. You have to turn in a scorecard. You have to measure them. And then there's a giant scoreboard, and it shows what everybody caught. And you can be like, huh. That guy's always catching 35 bonefish, but he didn't catch anything today or yesterday. That's weird. <laughs> and then and then the other guy, you're like, uh-huh, I see that guy all the time in all the spots, and look what he caught. He's the real deal, you know? And Or you go there and you, you, you just see these results that you don't even think are possible. And then that gets your wheels turning, and you're like, I didn't even know it was possible to catch 10 tarpon. You know, I mean, the most we've ever caught is three. Yeah. And now this guy's catching 10 when the starter pistol goes off and says go, and he can just go out there no matter what the tide is. And he does it, he did it this tournament and he did it last tournament. And that's the real deal. It, it opened up the, 
the the possibilities. Like maybe we're not doing everything that we can do. And then the other thing that it did is like if the conditions are great for this one particular fish and your clients show up, you go for that particular fish. They may be great conditions for that fish, and they may be horrible conditions for another fish. Take, take for example, tarpon and permit. Tarpon, love it, really slick, calm, and you can catch a lot of them. It's really fun to fish for them like that. I really don't like to fish for permit when it's like that. They're super spooky, and you can't get more than, you know, you get 100 feet from them. Most of your clients can cast 60 at best, and, and they're going to hit maybe that bed, not a pie tin or a, or a, or a wine glass. And so you got a permit tournament. It's slick, calm. You can't go tarpon fishing. So you have to learn how to fish in those conditions, and you have to learn, okay, I need to fish in deeper water. I need to do all of these things that that will allow, that the permit will allow my presence there. Rather than the really windy stuff, I can roll right up on them. They, don't, they never hear me. So on the windy days, you want to go permit fishing. On the calm days, you want to go tarpon fishing. But there's a tarpon tournament, and it's super windy. What do you do? You go tarpon fishing. It's a permit tournament, and it's super calm. What do you do? You go permit fishing. Or um, it's a redfish bonefish tournament, and you've been on the tarpon. So now you have to learn all of these things. And, and because you've made a commitment to this angler, and because you're signed up and you've paid all this money, now you have to break away from what you're doing, and you have to go learn this other fishery at a certain time of the year that you're not used to, used to fishing for those. Right. You're guiding in the tournaments, yeah. not yeah. fishing in the tournaments. No. Okay. And so, you know, you're in charge. Like, it's whatever you're doing. But, but having that set up is the ultimate learning ground. That is where you learn the most. Because if you're just coming back and sitting around a campfire and, you know, like our, our deal at, at the trout camp was, you know, you didn't really talk about your day. Like all, all you, you were only concerned that your your people had a good time, and the worst thing you could do is come in and and ask the other people, "Oh, what'd you catch today?" Oh, number and, one rule: and they're don't like, do it. They're like, "Oh, we caught the best <laughs> fish. Uh, we caught five of these things. It was amazing. It was the best day ever." And your customers like five. We caught fifty, and and all of a sudden their day is not so good anymore. Right. They were so happy before you opened your big fat mouth, and so we just didn't talk about it. Oh, we had a yeah. great day. That's what you say. Yeah. But in the tournament, it was different because, wow, it's all up there for everybody to see, and it it just started the possibilities. Like, wow, okay, well, I'm obviously fishing in the wrong place, or hmm, I don't know. That guy really knows what he's doing. How many you tournaments know? were you doing a year? Um, well, it. it in the Keys, there's an opportunity to fish a lot of tournaments. So you have the Redbone series, which is like four or five tournaments, and then then you know a tackle local tackle shop will do the guides and girls backcountry tournament, and you know it turns out that there are these tournaments very often, and the tournaments are usually there so that the guides have some business. I mean that's really oh. really what it's all about. Like a tackle shop will say, okay, this is a really slow time of the year. Let's have a tournament and maybe we can bring some people down you can say hey we're going to have this tournament you call some of your customers maybe they'll book you for that tournament for a special occasion if you just called them and said hey you want to come the third week of october probably not i mean but if you say hey there's going to be this thing it's going to be for charity come down and we can do this well now all of a sudden 20 guides are are booked for this that's that's a lot of days that they didn't have before and that's one of the ways that the the redbone became very successful is they planned that tournament at a time when when there wasn't much business, and then it was all for charity, and so it was it was a no brainer. But of course, Genius. when you get a bunch of Florida Keys flats guides together and a bunch of the type of anglers that like to fish there, it becomes ultra competitive, mm-hmm. like super ultra competitive. Who's like, paying to be in it? The anglers. They are. So the angler mm-hmm. hires tax you. Deductible. Yeah. So it's a it's a donation. Okay. No. So there's not a pop uh, a prize. No. At the end. No money. All just money goes to charity. Of, just a bunch of art, and uh, you know usually the artist donates whatever you'll have somebody like tim borsky or Derek DeYoung or somebody that'll donate a bunch of art they'll put a little little gold tag on there you know guide to first runner up or or guide to grand champion or whatever so most of the florida keys guides have this stuff hanging all over my wife wouldn't let me hang it in the house i had to hang it in the bathroom because it's not always sorry Derek, but it's not always uh you know what she might choose to put in your living room so it's okay had, Derek. you're in my living room yeah <laughs> he's in my living room too but but Derek's a bad choice i should have said somebody else i guess but yeah it, it is genius and it has raised tons of money for cystic fibrosis and it's become a very very good thing for the guides and for cystic fibrosis and for for this group of anglers and and it, it has become like a, a thing that you want to do but it's 
in a lot of ways probably more competitive that there's not money involved. Oh. I mean, I think it's a status thing, and it, it becomes very, very competitive. Do you think the competition or the competitive side of it turns people off? Sure, yeah, and it, and, and, and it should. Some, some people are not into it at all, but there, there are plenty that are into it, and if I were a customer, I would certainly want my guide fishing in it. Oh, really? Yes. Did you fish in the tournaments? No, never. I never. They wouldn't let guides fish in the tournaments. That was always oh. you. You couldn't be in them. You had to be on the on the back. But so the you, you know you're you're the guide in the tournament. But when I say if I were the customer, I would definitely want my favorite fishing guide to be fishing in those tournaments because your knowledge and your learning curve is like a hockey stick when you when you are in those tournaments because you start seeing things. And fishing in different areas. I mean, they happen all up and down the Florida Keys. So there's one in Key West, there's one in Isla Mirada, there's one in Key Largo. And you're fishing all up and down the Keys. You're learning new water. You're learning from people. Like maybe there's even situations where a Key Largo guide doesn't know Key West and Key West guide doesn't know Key Largo. So they get together and they start fishing together a little bit. Now you've learned a ton, but you wouldn't have done, you would never have done that if there wasn't a tournament involved. So I don't know. I think they're, I think they're a good thing. I certainly see why people don't like them, and I certainly see why it's not everybody's thing. Fishing's supposed to be fun, and if you're having fun, great. If a tur- if you think a tournament's fun, awesome. If you think going for world records are fun, awesome. If you think spin fishing's fun, great. Fly fishing, whatever. It's supposed to be fun. I don't like all the infighting between the between the anglers, personally. Yeah. But but it's all supposed to be fun. I think sometimes people lose lose that focus. No, are you still having fun? Are yeah. you still guiding? No, I don't do any guiding anymore. Okay, let's talk about that step in your progression. What happened? Oh, that's why I was telling you about the tournaments because uh, we were doing the uh, Florida Keys tournaments and then something kind of on the horizon out there were these redfish tournaments. So it was a professional tournament. It was like bass fishing. It was on, on TV and you needed sponsorship for it. And there was a, an opportunity to try this other part of fishing. I'd had such good experience in, in the Florida Keys tournaments that I thought, great, I think this is something I want to do. It was it scared the hell out of me, which usually is a good sign that if that really scares me, then it's probably something that I should probably do, right? Mm-hmm. And it was a two-man team, so I needed to find a partner. So there was a guy that I was fishing against in the Redbone tournaments that was winning a lot of stuff and seemed like a pretty good guy, and, and so... We started fishing together, and I said, hey, there's these there's these redfish tournaments. What do you think? You want to do them? He says, sure, let's do them. So uh, that was Rich Tudor, and he's become my partner on the television show. But we started doing these tournaments, and then we were doing fine in them, um, pretty well, really. We learned how to get some sponsorship. That was, the, that, that was that, so I was learning all about that world, which kept me very motivated and very involved. But I didn't like being away from my family at that time because my wife and I were having kids. I had I had two babies at home. And so I was leaving to go and, and do these tournaments. And it was at a time we went to uh, Venice, Louisiana, and Hurricane Charlie rolled over Key West. Oh. And my wife was in Hurricane, Hurricane Charlie by herself, well, with our friends. And they went and stayed at the fish house, which is like a concrete block structure. It was safe, but still a fish house and you got two babies there and uh i'm in louisiana i can't leave she can't leave so i just had to basically watch that storm roll over key west oh hope for God. the best and i just looked at rich and i said i'm never doing this again yeah never never doing it again and he didn't have kids at the time so he didn't fully understand he would understand now but he didn't fully understand them but i'm like no nah, i'm done like, you don't even understand how done I am. I'm ready to put the boat on the trailer now. Somehow he talked me into fishing the next day because I did get a call from my wife. She said, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. Just get home when you can. Everything will be fine. So we fished the next day, still had our silly tournament jerseys on and everything, put the boat on the trailer, started driving home. It didn't even change clothes, like, just straight on. And the way all the way there, he's like, well, so so you're done? Like, like really? Like, there's no way we can salvage this or do anything? I'm like, no, man, not this. I'm not doing this anymore. Being away from my family, there's no way. It's like, well, what what do you think? And so we started talking, you know, and it's a long trip from Venice, Louisiana to Key West. I said, well, maybe we could do a TV show. He's like, do you know anything about TV shows? Huh? Yeah, I know a little bit about TV shows. Like, what? What do you know? Like, well, I was in this great outdoor games thing, and then after that I did like 30 TV shows. I've seen other people do it. doesn't look that hard. Maybe we could do it. 
And so the next, we got home, and uh, the next week we got on a plane and went around to all of our um, redfish sponsors and asked them if they would spend the same amount of money on a television show. And they all said, absolutely. The economy was great. We should have asked for way more. You should have, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was great. I mean, it was an on-fire economy. But that got us jump-started, and um, I had been this uh, on this guy's show, Shaw Grigsby. He has a sh- he's a bass fisherman. He has a show called One More Cast. And Shaw's a wonderful guy. He's been a great mentor. And he said, do you want to do a TV show? Awesome. What you should do, you should make sure you own everything. Don't give any rights away. Mm-hmm. And I'll even give you my, uh, my crew. Here, I'll, I'll loan you my crew for a pilot. That's what you need. You need to film a pilot. And I said, okay. And then within a week, we we're filming a pilot. Oh, that's such good advice. When we did, when I did my show, I didn't own everything, and mm-hmm. the network bought it. I can't put it online. I can't distribute it. I can't do anything. Yeah, that's um. There's 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 benefits to both. Um, yes, sir. Let's. Let, but before that, let's talk about what the show is. It's the saltwater experience. Saltwater experience. Yeah. And how long has it been running for? Or it's our fourteenth year. Congratulations! <laughs> this is a long time on television. It, it, yes, it is. <laughs> so you own everything, which means you have to buy the airtime. Mm-hmm. Okay, that takes it down a whole different path. That's a yep. lot of work that goes into that. It is. And that's what we're doing here at, at ICAST Show. I mean, this is a big show for us. We have we we meet with everyone, and so we we got saltwater experience going. It's been going for 14 years. About four years into it, maybe three years into it, we decided to do an offshore version of the show. So we have Into the Blue also. And then somewhere along the line, we thought maybe we could do a freshwater version of the show. So we have Sweetwater as well. So we have three TV shows now that, that we that we do but um you guys own all the airtime so just for people who don't know and i've talked about this on other episodes the difference is my show the network owned it which means that they get to own the airtime and, and mm-hmm. when you see a ford commercial it's with them but right. you own a, what a half hour slot mm-hmm. so Three that half means hour slots. not only wow so not <laughs> only do you have to put together the show mm-hmm. and get the sponsors to be able to pay for that show but then you also or, or yeah, I guess you can take them. You can have sponsors for the show, and also you own the commercial time, right? Yep. So yep. you also have to find the sponsors to fill that. And I mean, you must be a full time hustler. Well, um, yes, yes. <laughs> and luckily, my partner is better at that part of the business than I am, um, because I do like the sales and stuff like that. But I prefer the creative side of the business, and he prefers the analytical side of the business. The you know how we pay our bills. How we how we hire people, how we manage our money efficiently. That's that's his side, and that's great because I don't really like that. I don't like negotiations. I don't like that stuff. What I do like is I like creating the show. I like dealing with the creative people. I like being out there on the boat when we're filming these things. So I go on the into the blue shows. Uh, we film our shows. The Sweetwater shows are filmed in bass boats, uh, so I don't usually go on those because there's no no room, but I like that's that's what I like. I like I like creating the story. I like watching it all come together. I like trying to walk this line between entertainment and sponsorship, which mm-hmm. is very difficult to do. Yeah, and that's that is one of the reasons I didn't want to do it your way because mm-hmm. I don't I didn't want to have to push something. Yeah. How do you do it without just having everyone's eyes glaze over? Well, well, you have to do it in a way that first of all it has to be something that you believe in, that you like and that you feel like your showing your audience this product is going to help them to become a better fisherman and enjoy fishing better or or whatever. And then there has to be... We were really lucky because our first go at, at TV was on the Outdoor Channel and then... Then, but it was really small back then. Nobody was seeing the show. I would go back to my... You know, I was guiding every day and I'm like, did you see the show? No, no, we didn't see it. So we decided we were going to make a change, and the next year we were on OLN and ESPN at the same time. Because you're allowed to sell it to as many channels mm-hmm. as you want, yeah, right? Yeah, you could do when whatever, and we actually produced two different shows. We had a show, a 30-minute show for OLN, and then we had this little two-and-a-half-minute vignette on ESPN. It was right between you know shows like Walker's K Chronicles and Jose Wehebe's show, and, and so we could buy this little two-minute block in there. And ESPN would absolutely not allow any blatant marketing on the show. So you had to, if you had a sponsor that had a product that they wanted you to talk about, you had to do this all in the in in an educational way. So you could say, this is a this is a quarter ounce jig head. I like this particular jig head. And of course the packaging is under there so you could see that it was made by whoever. I like this particular jig head because you know it has reflective eyes. It's on this particular hook that's that's chemically sharpened or whatever. So this is what you're looking for in a jig head. 
or this is what you're looking for in a rod or, or a cast net or whatever. So you weren't saying, buy this cast net. You were saying, if you're trying to catch pilchards that are this size, you need a quarter inch net. Otherwise, it'll look like this. Or you would you would educate. And in the education, it's a soft sell and the soft sell is more effective. Do you think that you could do the same sort of marketing or the same sort of advertisement or subtle advertising in fly fishing? Or do you think that fly fishing shows... Do you think that there's just not the money in fly fishing that there is in conventional? There is definitely not the money in fly fishing that there is in conventional. Uh, I know. No, (laughs) there's not any doubt about it. I started my career as a fly fisherman. I thought saltwater experience was going to be all fly fishing, but... OLN and ESPN require a tremendous amount of money, and that money does not come from the fly fishing industry. Yeah. And so, you know, there is there is kind of the the original goal, and then there's amended goal. Like, okay, well, I like the TV. I like what we're doing. I'm not doing those tournaments anymore. I'm with my family every night. But this is, sounds like it's going to be a little more conventional tackle. Sounds like it's going to be a little more, a little different than we had originally planned. But you didn't learn on conventional tackle. So mm-hmm. did you have to then do, because a lot of my fly fishers have on the show, they've learned from conventional tackle right. and then they turn yeah, into Yeah, that's the way you should do it. I didn't learn saltwater fishing with conventional tackle. I, I fished with conventional tackle all my life growing up to then. And I could throw a bait caster, I could throw a spinning rod and, and was very comfortable with those. But it wasn't until I met Cal Blumberg and started fishing with the, in, in the Redbone tournaments that I really saw what true skill with a spinning rod is all about and go go fishing with kevin van dam and you will see him do something with a bait casting rod that you didn't know was possible and he'll do it over and over and over again five thousand times that day putting putting his lure in your coffee cup from 50 feet away and then he does it again and 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 he is so incredibly practiced with that i would say more so than almost any fly fisherman i've ever seen because no fly fisherman casts that much a guy like kevin is casting all day long every day for the last 35 years i mean there is no one that does that in fly fishing. No, not Steve Ray, Jeff, not anyone. There's no one that casts that much. Is There's just no reason to. It'd be completely insane. He's exceptional. You know, back in the day when they used to have fly fishing tournaments, that was part of the mm-hmm. tournament. You'd right. have to actually be able to cast uh, a lure. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's one of the things that I have so much respect for Steve Ray, Jeff, is that he's not just a fly casting champion. He's the all-around champion, like 18 times. So he can cast with a spinning rod, a bait caster, a fly rod, and I don't know, maybe other stuff. I don't know what else there is in, the, in those <laughs> things, but I know he's really good at all of them, and I know it took a lot of practice and a lot of dedication, and, and to do that 18 times, I don't care what kind of world champion you are. If you're going to be a world champion, that takes a tremendous amount of practice. If you're going to repeat, that is incredible. And if you're going to have a almost two-decade domination that means that he's working so much harder than everyone else. I don't know. I just find that very interesting. I thought about going down that road, bef- you know, kind of before the, you know, I've always been kind of drawn to the competition side of it because what the competition always did for me was make me way better, way faster. I don't know. I, I never, there were a couple of guys that were tournament casters that would, that were in Key West and I would go cast with them, but never never went down that road like like those guys but that time i already had because there were many years of tournaments before so i had already learned all about the 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 spinning oh so you were fishing rods. spin you were spin fishing in the tournaments as well yeah, yeah okay mostly. all right so it wasn't like you started television and you started gear fishing right no no we had been doing that for a while and in fact that's that was our kind of a we had been winning a lot of those red bone tournaments and and, and developing a reputation and fishing with guys that like like a Mitch Whittem or a Cal Blumberg or these guys that were just unbelievable spin anglers. And they could also throw a fly rod. And if the situation was great, fly points were double. So you, you would throw a fly if you could. So you were rewarded for that. But there was also the idea of if you throw that fly out in front of that fish, he might not eat it. You might get a refusal, and he's going to eat the shrimp. Right, so it's a gamble, and, and yeah, there was always a gamble, and sometimes that paid off, and sometimes it didn't, and those things. But <laughs> I think we were talking about how the fly industry couldn't couldn't support, you know, a, a show like that, and you know, the shows that that were supported, like John Barrett, uh, Fly Fish in the World, and and all of those. You know, if you look back on those, 
he had a big automotive sponsor. Like he had Ford, uh, Ford okay. Trucks, Fly Fish in the World, Fly Fish in America. There was there were big sponsors, and maybe even in some some situations, the network would fund half. He would, you know, not necessarily John Barrett, but whoever the producer would would fund the other half. No, but it's interesting uh, you said that because there are a lot of television shows out there that are self funded, mm-hmm. and Lots. and it's hard to tell the difference. You know, is that person on there because they've got the money behind them from sponsors and viewership, or is that person on there because they've got the ego and they've got a rich parent? You know, how I do think, you? I think you can tell because the ones that uh, I think the ones that that are getting paid by the sponsors, they actually have to do the work for the sponsors. So. You know, you have an obligation to that sponsor. You've made a deal that you're going to use their product in these in these shows. Well, if if that deal doesn't exist, then you just it's a lot easier in a lot of cases to do it a different way, right? But now you have to do something that you said you were going to do. You have to use this particular rod or this particular lure, or this mm. this particular technique, or uh, you have to catch this particular fish. There's there's always something. Right? <laughs> yeah, there's, there's some always kind something. Of, there's some kind of agreement that you've made that you're going to do this. You know, if you don't have those agreements and the fishing's really good, well, just do it this way. You know, you hear people say, oh, television's dying with Netflix and the internet. Have you found that? Is that scary for you? It's, yeah. Yeah. It's uh, something I think about every single day. I think, I think, um, this show will be interesting in the next couple of days to see what the temperature is on, on television. Last year, the temperature in that building behind us that we're going to go to tomorrow, the ICAST show, was was very poor on TV. So what would you do if tomorrow fishing television went down the drain? Well, we would go all all digital, and I think that we could do okay there. The numbers are still pretty good on television. I mean, they have gone down substantially. When we were on OLN, we would do 250,000 people on a Saturday on OLN and 350,000 on, on on that same Saturday on ESPN for the, for those shows. So you're talking about you know, close to 600,000 people are watching you every single weekend. Now there's not a network on television that can do that. Not Certainly not for a fishing show. And, and a lot of live sports would like to have those numbers. Everything has changed. There are at that time, there were probably 20 channels. Now there's 3,000 channels, not to mention social media, Facebook, uh, YouTube, Vimeo, Waypoint, everything else. There's a million reasons why people aren't watching television. But there are still people that are watching, and in a lot of ways, those people that are still watching television are the people that are buying boats and motors and fishing equipment and trucks. And, and I know the numbers have gone down. And I am actively pursuing all digital opportunities, but at the same time, I'll, I'll be the first to be on those digital opportunities, but I'll be the last to leave conventional television. I think you've got to do both now. Where can people find you? Saltwaterexperience.com, Tom Rowland Podcast on uh, iTunes and Stitcher and everywhere else, everywhere your podcast is, I'm sure. And then uh, saltwaterexperience.com is our, is our uh, hub but then all of our episodes are on Waypoint TV, waypointtv.com. They can watch all of those. And I don't know, Google. Tom, is there anything that you would like to add or to ask me? Um, no, I'm going to ask you everything I need to ask you here in just a few minutes on, on my show. So I hope your, your viewers will, or your listeners will come over and, and, and hear that because uh, you're, a, you're a very interesting person. Thanks. And intriguing and uh I have done a little bit of homework, not mm. probably not enough, but I have some questions. I really do. Okay, let's do it. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thanks for listening. fish are where you think they are. Any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.